my goal through all these conversations and everything is to just kill the shame, kill the stigma, explain to people that A, you're not alone. B, your life is not hopeless. There are a lot of situations that seem completely dire and insane and crazy when you first look at them. And you look at that same person five, six years later and their life is so completely different. And I really want people to buy into and understand that you can recover from anything. You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, a lifestyle podcast hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Tune in for a new episode every Tuesday to hear our honest conversations about topics like wellness, entrepreneurship, spirituality, and self-development with guests who are really smart, really inspirational, and really fucking funny. <laughs> it's real, it's raw, and it's unfiltered. Inspired by our transition from our 20s to our 30s, we realized it's so much more than that. Our mission is to provide you with the tools, guidance, and motivation to help you navigate any transitions in your life and propel your personal growth. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome back. Hey. Good to see you. Great to see you. Fresh Tuesday. Keeping it sexy for you. <laughs> <laughs> we, I think we got a message the other day. I don't know if you saw it. Someone Why was not? like, yeah, <laughs> someone was like, uh, your voices are so soothing. Aww. So sexy. Keeps me, like, keeps, keeps me company. Yeah, keeps me <laughs> That's how I'm going to meet my husband. He's going to message me and say, you've kept me horny for two years. <laughs> yeah, every day in traffic, you've kept me horny. <laughs> oh, that's really sweet. Mm-hmm. I actually took a week off Instagram. I didn't wasn't on Instagram for a week. Yeah, how good does that feel? You know what? It felt like nothing. It felt like I, it, the week flew by. Like I didn't even, it, it did feel a little less, a little more clear, mm-hmm. but just so busy anyways outside of it. I was like, I know. I just forgot about even doing it, but there is a feeling like, oh, you know, it's it's just never enough with it's social inter- media. I know. It's interesting when you have other things going on. Yeah. I, I don't mean it like that. I just mean like, um, like if you're a, if you say you're just blogging, then like obviously Instagram is so important to as like a supplement, but then we have the podcast and the events and the tour and it's just like, we're able to connect in other ways. So Instagram, although we love to cover that stuff on there, it's kind of a little bit of an afterthought, afterthought sometimes. Totally. I don't know. Cause it's like, yeah. And, and then also if I have nothing to say, I don't want to say anything. Yeah, that's where I'm kind of at where I'm at. And like, it feels like I'm lying if mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, everyone, self-care Sunday, I took a bath and it felt great. You know, I, I want to be truthful mm-hmm. with how I feel. Yeah. So I don't want to. And sometimes too, I'm like, wow, more pictures of me. <laughs> Literally. You know, I'm like, oh, here we go again. See you. I honestly wonder what my kids are going to say. Dude, it's I funny. hope I hope to blow up in my Instagram before that. Totally. I know. I do think that, yeah, like what's, especially like what the style's going to be like. Oh mm-hmm. man, I'm going to be laughing. Laughing. Laughing to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> we were even just talking about before. Early days of almost 30. Uh, 
there was no fashion sense. And we're going to say the same thing now about what we're wearing now. But like we were TTH trying too hard in so many ways. And people still find those pictures on the internet and use them and use them for like, if we're, we're so honored always to be like written anywhere, but Ask us for recent pictures because those are not good. (laughs) My eyes are watering because I've been puking in my mouth. They're so bad. We'd be like, oh, it's it's holiday time. Let's put on gingerbread leggings. Yeah, and literally and red lipstick and curl your hair. And I put on like a I remember I had like a velvet choker with sneakers. Huh? Remember our Palm Springs shoot? Actually, that was a dope shoot at the time. But like to look back, we cannot use those photos. We went full on like, we thought we were a girl group. (laughs) So weird. So weird. Dude, but that's the thing with photo shoots so often is it's like costumes. Yeah. You're always, you're always doing too much, you know, because it's like. I just need a classic photo. I want like a timeless photo of us. What is, I know. What is that even? I don't, <laughs> I don't even know. Even know. Cause it's like, I was wearing like a white t-shirt. I'm like, I don't even really look good in just like a white t-shirt. I know. So I'm like, what do I, Same. what do we do? Like white t-shirts sitting on Malibu cliff. Sitting on stools. Yeah. Literally sitting on stools with a white, like green screen background. Dude, I don't even know. You guys will, in the secret Facebook group, we'll share the pictures. Oh my God, we should. We'll definitely share them. They're going to be so sweet. And we were like eating ice cream. Oh my God. It was for a brand. TBT. TBT. (laughs) I I know. Oh man. Oh, how far we've come, I hope. But then I'm going to be laughing about what I'm doing right now. Truly. Two days, so. Whatever. Truly. Cycle of life. Cycle of life, man. Cycle of life. Here we are. I'm pumped about this episode. Me too. So Adi was on uh, Jonathan Van Ness's podcast, Getting Curious. Casual. 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 I love Jonathan. Love Jonathan. Love Adi. It was such a great episode. As you know, we've had uh, Sophie, his lovely wife on. She's a good friend of ours. Um, Her episode's rocked my world, like yeah. brought me to a new level of happiness. And she is like major inspiration for us. And we've always loved and admired their relationship. So we met a D or I met a D. I think, I don't know if you had met him mm-hmm. um, when we did their podcast ignited. So you guys can find ignited on um, iTunes. There was an episode where they interviewed us. So that was a really fun episode. You can listen to episode, episode, episode. And then um, a D came out with this book and he came over and Dude, this episode this episode's necessary. I I love his story. I love the way he talks to things. Mm-hmm. I love his honesty. I love he's so crisp. Like he's just very clear with his point and his intention and his story and his message. And it's very refreshing. Yeah, the way in which he's approached um just even like looking at addiction and lifting the shame around it, both for those that are struggling with addiction and the friends and family around those struggling with addiction, just kind of making the kind of the acceptance and the energy around it more um, suitable for healing and progressing as human beings. You know, I think so many times when people are struggling with addiction um, that the shame that keeps them in the addiction yeah, a lot of times. Ex- exactly. Like it just stops and then they go back and then 
they they revert and they feel like their identity is that bad Mm -hmm. thing. The shame usually causes a relapse of some sort. So, you know, a a D story is crazy. It was fucking cool. I didn't know a lot of what he shared on the podcast, which was so beautiful that he was, he's, you know, open, um, enough to do that. And, um, you know, I really appreciate his honesty. I think that helps people heal as well. So yeah, we're just really, really, really excited for this episode. His book, The Abstinence Myth is out now. Um, If you are someone who has struggled with addiction, know someone, know someone who knows someone, I think this is a really important read to lift the shame judgment and the rules around addiction. It's Awesome. So we got a copy of the book and I have been reading it. I love the way he writes and I'm so excited for you guys to get the book. We'll have it linked in the show notes um, and we can talk about it in the secret Facebook group. Yes. Thank you so much, Adi, for coming on. Enjoy this episode and we'll see you on the other side of this. We're rolling. Yeah. We're so happy we to have you roll. here. Cool. Yeah. We're so happy. Um, it's been a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so much fun. I'm I know. so happy to be here. It's like a long time coming. We are obviously a bit huge fan. Is it, does that annoy you ever when people are like, I fucking love your wife. Um, so many people love your wife I so mean, much. I love my wife. Oh, yeah, you do. So I totally understand why. I mean, I just feel like every time I talk to you, I'm just like, I love Sophie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I like that. Like, hell mm-hmm. uh, i definitely married up which is always nice it's like mm-hmm. kind of i think i think it also keeps you real because you you always have to work up to it mm-hmm. you know um so that's that's really nice by itself but also we're such different people um yeah. i tell this story all the time well i when it comes to kind of these these pieces of it uh, sophie and i broke up for about 11 months mm-hmm. early in our relationship how i mean i think we had we had been together for a year the whole cheating thing happened broke up and we were done for about 11 months and during those 11 months, I got really centered and I did a lot of work on myself. And one of those things was I was going to yoga almost every day, like probably five times a week on average. Sophie and I saw each other in a yoga class. She then ended up going to Thailand. I ended up writing her this email. We reconnected and decided that we're going to try again. And as we started being together again, I started going to yoga less and less. And Sophie's like, why don't you go to yoga anymore? I'm like, you're, you're my yoga. Like, mm. I'm good. Mm. You know, it's Sophie calms my energy in general, kind of centers me. She's also really good. Uh, I'm sure she'll be listening to this. But she's also really good at like challenging me on the things that are, you know, saying I don't have patience. I'm not, I'm slightly disorganized and like just my brain works in a very different way than hers. Mm-hmm. So it's, it just works really well together. And I, I love know. It. I feel like you guys fit together like mm-hmm. little puzzle pieces. Is that like early on in your relationship, was that challenging? I think sometimes like as mm. like when you're emotionally, maybe not as evolved, like the differences can be what you focus on. Sure. And she was really young. She was 20 when we met. I was 28. Wow. So we were in pretty different places. I was in graduate school. She was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was hard at first. Yeah. <laughs> it was Sophie's uh conception of time is really flexible. That's my that's my really nice <laughs> it's like way, a babe. Good and bad thing. <laughs> I, I love you, baby. Uh that's my way of saying Sophie can be late to anything. Oh. <laughs> and at first it would piss me off. I came from a house where you showed up to everything five to fifteen minutes early just to be there exactly on time, right? Like that's where I came from. I literally left, I was waiting for her for a date one time downstairs in the car and I texted her that I was downstairs and 15 minutes passed and I texted her again and like another five minutes passed and I left. <laughs> I left. I just, she called me, she's like, where are you? I go, 
I left. I was like, I waited for you for 25 minutes or something downstairs. She was pissed. So, yeah, it took a little while. She's took like, a I minute. want a man that waits for me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know Those what? girls. I think Sophie, um, yeah, it's weird. Sophie, again, she was really young when we first met. But Sophie, I think, also wants somebody who will balance her. Mm-hmm. Because she can get very airy and kind of floaty. And she talks about that with her diet, too. If she... If she gets too clean almost in her diet, her mind just kind of wanders and, and gets. Mm. So I think we, yeah, we, we set each other off in the right way. she doesn't get grounded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is hard for me to understand because I'm, I'm the, the opposite. Like yeah. I, I'm so constantly tethered to reality, but that can make you also not challenge yourself. It can make you not reach for things that you would otherwise because of fear, all that kind of stuff. So mm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't have ignited, and I wouldn't have started the treatment center, and I wouldn't, I was, I wouldn't have done a lot of things if I wasn't with Sophie. Yeah, yeah, I think a partnership in general, you just are able to see parts of yourself that you would have never seen. Yeah, you well, you know? have to trust the other person. You have to trust that when they tell you mm. something that isn't put out exactly the way you want to hear it, or is just not the feedback you were hoping for that they're not doing it out of some agenda, but that they're honestly reflecting back to you what's going on. And if you can be in that place, then it's great. Cause I think deep inside, we all want to be the best that we can be. Yeah. It's just, we've all been fucked over by so many people that had an agenda and that's why they, Oh, you should really do this. And then you find out, you know, down the line that that somehow serves their inner peace. And, um, and so like with Sophie, you know, we have some of the conversations are really tough. They're not easy conversations, but most of the time we understand that the other person is coming at it from a really good place or trying to improve the relationship or trying to get us to a better place. And then you just dig deep. Yeah. And just try to solve it. So can we go back? Like what, who was a D before, I guess it's like mm. before Sophie, after Sophie, but not, mm. but. But there's this like intersection time, which if you go back and listen to our episode with um, Sophie Jaffe, she, you know, told the story and it was such an an incredible story that really touched our listeners yeah. and was transformative. And, but bring us back to kind of your teens and, and your um, experience with addiction. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I met Sophie in 2005 and I was starting graduate school at UCLA, but by that point, that was, you know, three, three years post this transformation that you're talking about, mm-hmm. because I'll run people through it pretty quickly, but after a lot of drug experimentation in my teens and at the beginning of college, like I think a lot of people do, I found myself in this kind of, you know, underground black market world of, of drugs here in LA. And like selling? It, yeah, yeah, it was actually mm. funny. So I was driving right right down the street and you turned from, I think it's Barrington I was turning mm-hmm. off of, right? Mm-hmm. And right there on the corner of- Barrington. Literally like, Barrington yeah. and, and this- what's the, It's like the, Rochester, Texas. Yeah, Ro- yeah. Right, Rochester yeah. and Barrington, right there mm-hmm. though. There's this apartment building and I haven't driven by that thing and I don't even know how long, but immediately I flash back to like Whoa. one of my first meth dealers lived in that building and had a really nice, I think he actually managed the- a building or something like that had a really nice apartment. And that was kind of where I started scoring meth. I was selling ecstasy here locally. And, um, 
I love that I always give the region. Like, I was the regional manager of the West <laughs> LA um, ecstasy dealing. Yeah. yeah um, 1 800 MDMA <laughs> now. I think that actually works out to the right number of, uh, yeah. of digits if anybody oh, wants to buy that right now. Um, so, I was selling ecstasy. Uh, somebody introduced me to meth because of my own studying. Like, I had a bad breakup. I was kind of depressed. Finals were coming up and I wasn't mm-hmm. in the place to study. And my friend was like, hey, do a little bit of this. You'll be good to study. Dun dun. It worked like crazy. And people freak out about it right now. But those of you who are like crushing up Adderall and snorting it, not all that fucking different than, than snorting meth, just FYI. So that's what I got into. And it worked so well. I studied straight for three days, like 72 <laughs> hours, stayed up and studied. Oh I'm not embellishing. There's no exaggeration. My girlfriend Yo. would go to sleep. And then I would stay up, like it was still, it was really messed up relationship for a while there, but um, I would just be downstairs, like just yeah. studying all night. Would and you then, retain? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, meth stimulants in general, but amphetamines especially, make you really good at remembering things. Mm. Weirdly through research, they probably make it really hard to unremember things or, or forget or relearn. And uh, and that's probably part of, at least part of the reason why they're really hard to quit. But it worked really, really well. And so I started using them every finals period. And then I was using them for midterms too. And then for papers. And next thing you know, I'm using them three times a week. And once you use them three times a week, you have to use them every day because your energy oh. drops so much when you stop. Like when fi- I did it for finals, it wasn't that big a deal, quote unquote. Finals would end and I would just crash for a day and I'd be fine. When you start using it two to three times a week, you got to start using it all the time. Next thing I was doing, I was using it daily. I was already making really good money selling ecstasy. So the money wasn't an issue. How much um, does it cost? Uh, it was, I mean, what I started on, a 20 bag, literally $20 could last me a week. Okay. So it was And what is meth cheap. like in the, what form is it in? So the stuff I got initially is kind of stuff Looking most people- Looking to start people, a biz. Yeah, yeah no, I, told, I can give you some, I can give you some uh, referrals after this. No, I think these are actually good questions because a lot of people think they're doing one thing or they, you know, they classify these drugs in different places or maybe even more importantly for people listening, they know somebody who's involved with it Mm. and just understanding it better. One of my biggest things is we're most afraid of the things we don't know. So once you understand it better, the stuff I was using originally is something most people would kind of call crank, which is just shitty speed. And it can come in pink colors or slightly brown or orangish kind of color. It's like dirty meth essentially is the idea and low quality kind of stuff. And then that's where I started. And then as I got better and better connections, essentially it goes to essentially crystal or ice. Uh, and that's what most people talk about as meth is uh, it literally looks like shards of glass. It looks like broken up crystals. And that's where all the names come from it. And you can smoke it, you can shoot it, you can snort it. I started snorting. That's kind of how I started. I moved to smoking it, which is really inefficient, meaning you go through more and it's more expensive, but it doesn't last as long. Uh, for anybody listening right now, all drugs kind of work in this way where there's shooting and snorting it and smoking it and, and swallowing. Those are kind of the main methods people do it. When you swallow drugs, they last longer, but hit you slower. Mm. When you smoke, they hit you really fast, but in really small doses, because there's only so much that can absorb through your lungs. And so like, if you smoke weed, you take a hit and then 30 seconds later, you feel it. That doesn't work when you eat it, right? It's 30 minutes later that you feel it. So a lot of people start out with snorting with meth. And then eventually I went to smoking and I was smoking a lot. And, um, you know, my entire life was essentially selling drugs and Coke, meth, everything, all that. Mm-hmm. And I had no life outside of that. Like I'm, we're sitting here in the living room with the light, um, coming in from outside. We lived in my recording studio, essentially all blacked out inside. You couldn't see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'd see like 
a ray of sun under the crack of the double wide door for uh, insulation. And we were like vampires. We lived yeah. like vampires. We would stay inside until that thing dimmed so we could go outside at mm. nighttime. And then we just mm. did drugs, partied, and, you know, just acted like crazy people. How much money did you make? When I started with ecstasy, I was bringing in about like 7,000 a month when I was still a student at UCLA. By the time it was done, like before I got arrested, I was bringing in 300 to 500 a year. And I had a recording studio, like I said, I had an apartment. Did you have I was a job driving. that's like a- Nothing. Cover? Really? I had nothing. I mean, it's kind of crazy. You look at my tax returns from before I went to UCLA, and then also it's like three dead years. Like just <laughs> nothing. Like not. Didn't, didn't even submit. I didn't even. I lived yeah. outside of reality. Like I didn't wow. live in reality for about three to four years of my life. And um, honestly, it's a surprise to me that I made it out alive. I got. I got to the point. It sounds ridiculous again to say it right now because of where I live now and how my life is, but. I was a quint like this the thing you imagine, like carrying a gun, walking around, video cameras inside the studio and outside the studio. Anytime somebody would ring, you gotta go look at the video camera, see what it is. I'd been held up at gunpoint, robbed, like all this stuff you hear about drug use. And then um and I tried to quit meth myself like five to seven times because I could just feel it draining me. Uh, but it was also about half my income and that mm -hmm. made it hard. So I realized a few times into it that I couldn't sell it and quit. So I had to stop selling it, which then means, you know, dozens, if not a few hundred people begging me to keep selling it because that was their connection. And mm. so- Did they like show up at the studio? They would show up at the studio. They would text me. This is then the days, you guys are too young for this, but like if anybody listening right now remembers the days where you had to pay kind of you didn't have unlimited phone, so mm, you'd yeah. pay for your minutes. Yeah. And Verizon had this really crazy thing. It wasn't even Verizon back then. I forgot the name of the company, but- 1-800-COLLECT. First... <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? Make 1-800-COLLECT. You'd be like, hey, mom, pick me up at the movies. <laughs> well, so Verizon had this thing. Incoming <laughs> calls, the first minute was free. Yes. So Verizon had this thing originally on their, on their it's plans. It's like an Instagram story. Okay. I know. Literally. Like, so that people would call me and- but my phone bill was like $2,500 a month back oh, in those days. Because there were four to like, no big deal. There were four <laughs> to 500 people calling us on a regular oh, basis, 24 seven. Like God. my phone bill didn't end. Dude, it just that kept is going. Crazy. You would get, I don't know if you guys remember, there used to be time where you could actually get your phone bill in paper form, like before all this e-delivery shit. And my phone bill was like a phone book every time it was like a like a thick 300 page book and it costs like 20 biggie raps about this sometimes like yeah. in one of his songs he says our phone bill about two g's flat and i literally like that was every month what i would pay for my wow. phone bill and that's the life i lived like i was in strip clubs daily i did oh. drugs constantly i had a video camera two video cameras inside my studio and i had the tapes after i'd gotten sober and everything. And I watched one of them once. Mm. Oh my God. Okay, honestly, I watched it more than once. But um, yeah. I'm literally sitting on a couch and I would just smoke meth. And then somebody would come in and buy some and we'd smoke together or get fucked up in some other way together. And they'd leave and I'd keep smoking. And maybe I'd play music for 20 minutes and then I'd keep smoking. And then somebody else would come in the whole day. Like 24 hours a day, I would just sit around and get high. And wow. I don't even understand how somebody can do that anymore, but I did, uh -huh. that was my life. And so 2001, uh, 10 days before my birthday, I get in a motorcycle accident and uh, it was a pretty bad accident. Like I mm. totally broke my tibia and my fibula and my right leg. Wow. Was in the hospital. Uh, again, had tried to quit meth, didn't work, but they found a bunch of drugs on me, like a half a pound of Coke. And oh my God. 
So the cops, that's a lot of coke. That's a lot of Half a pound? Coke. Half a pound. It's like- uh, What's a key? Like if you, kilo? A uh, kilo is two and a half pounds. Uh, but like if you take this and instead of a book, just make cocaine out of it, that was how much- Oh my God. So, sorry, I'm holding a journal right now in my hands no. for those of you who can't see it. Um, but it was like, you know, if you take, literally you take a journal and you fold it and like you just, yeah. that amount of space- uh, worth of cocaine. So they found it. It was inside the lining of my jacket. And for three months, the cops would constantly badger me to try to snitch on whoever I bought from and all that kind of stuff. And I wouldn't do it. And then one Saturday morning, they busted my door down and uh, SWAT team, the full thing, you know, wow. shotguns to the face, like screaming at me, all black. And I was with a broken leg in bed, like a gun next to me. It was the bullshit you see in like uh, in Breaking Bad. That was exactly how it went down. And um, that started this two and a half to three year journey of kind of clawing my way back. Went to rehab, failed out of rehab for relapsing, went to another rehab, did eight months there, did a year in jail, got out of jail, tried to get hired. People don't like hiring convicted felons. It's something I found out when I was mm. 26, when I got out of jail. Um, I couldn't get a job at the mall. Like, express men wouldn't fucking hire me, you know, like, mm -hmm. cause you have that checkbox and most people pass it up. But that thing, have you ever been convicted of a felony? The thing that most people listening to right now just say no and just move on for me, you have to answer yes. Cause it's a crime to say no. I'll get no callback. So I tried for nine months. My parents were paying my rent during that time. And I ended up going back to school cause it's the only thing I could do. Nothing else would accept me. And Cal State Long Beach, God bless them. I heard this has changed actually since I went there, but they did not ask, have you ever been convicted of a felony on their application? So I went back to school and it was really weird to go from being a drug dealer to being a student again. Mm. It's we. I don't know how, how you guys feel about this. Actually, it's kind of like, there's this weird thing that comes with power and I don't really care how you get power. You start buying into it a little bit yourself. It gets hard not to. Like you have to either be mm -hmm. have really amazing people around you that center you all the time or you just give in. And when you stand in front of people and tell them what to do and they just do it without asking. And I'd lived that life for four to five years, you know, like I had enough money, enough drugs and enough like power over people around me. I, I say it's like a king of like a land of shit. It didn't, it wasn't a great place, but you know, dozens of people that would just do whatever I needed and going from that to normal life was hard, but I'm really, really glad that it, it worked out because I think I was more addicted to that way of life than mm. I was even to the drugs. Did you see like the light? Like what was your light at that time? Like, like your motivation mm. to get clean? I know you wanted to feel better and not be a slave to the drug, but Hon like, honestly, if I'm honest, light? if I'm honest, I just didn't want to go back to jail ever again. Mm. That's it. Yeah. I was facing, I had this thing called a suspended sentence, which means that if I had gotten in trouble again in that way, like selling drugs, I would have seven years added to my sentence to mm. whatever other next sentence I would get. So if I got back in trouble, I was gonna be in prison for like a decade or more. Wow. And that worked for me. You know, I just said, that was my first time in real jail. Like I, look, I've been arrested four to five times, but I would always do the like couple of hours in a holding cell or one time in Beverly Hills, I had to spend the weekend, but like it was Beverly Hills jail, mm, you know, like they yeah. brought you breakfast in a warm fucking tray with like a, wow. essentially what was like a McMuffin with eggs or some shit like that. And it was yeah, like- Is this what we do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was like, yeah. it sucked. I mean, I'm still making phone calls on a, you know, on like a pay phone in a jail mm -hmm. talking to my friends, et cetera, uh, and my lawyers, but it didn't feel like 
getting a year in jail and facing years of prison. That's what it took for me. So I cleaned up my act and I was sober for three years. I was in school um, and I worked hard. I mean, I was a 4.0 student all of a sudden and uh, I did everything. I worked really, really hard. Um, actually, in the middle of that school, I left sobriety. So I'm not sober for anybody listening right now mm-hmm. who cares about this sort of stuff. I'm not technically sober. I haven't done meth in 15 years, but I'm not sober. I drink socially and that started in grad school for mm-hmm. me. But then I went to UCLA. And so after all that, I actually got into UCLA, which was incredible to come from kind of the place that I'd mm-hmm. been in to get back into UCLA. The grad school program in psychology is really good. I get in first quarter. I want to take a class in neuroscience because I think I really want to study the brain related to addiction. And it's funny. I thought I'd never taken this class, but it turns out because I was an undergrad at UCLA, it turns out I'd taken that class before. <laughs> but it was during my meth Didn't time. Remember. Literally did not remember wow. a fucking thing from it. I didn't remember that it existed. So I sit in this class. I later ended up teaching in the same room, which was really cool. Wow. But by that point in my life, I'm sitting in the first or second row in these big lecture halls. Mm-hmm. And there's this girl that's sitting, you know, like 12 seats over, um, about two to three lectures in, we start putting together study groups, Sophie and I and a couple of our other friends um, end up in the same study group. I tell her this, but I literally, I thought when she started like trying to hang out with me more, I literally thought she was like the pretty girl that's trying to hang out with the nerd to copy his shit. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Totally thought that's what was going on. <laughs> totally thought it. Cause she would flake and she would like be late to study sessions. And, but we start hanging out more and more and more. Next thing she's sitting next to me in class. Uh, and then I found out she had a boyfriend. Mm. And I was like, I'm not doing this. So yeah, that was kind of, much. that was this thing that landed us together. And I was really honest with Sophie. Like our third date, I told her about everything. Oh, wow. In my past, because I learned before that you don't save this kind of information because A, you never know how people are going to react when you tell them about my my past. Um, and some people stop talking to me when they find out about it. So I learned you, you get it out quick. And then if mm-hmm. she wanted to leave, she could leave and you know I wouldn't be as invested. Kind of a self-protection mechanism, mm-hmm. but she stuck around. I think our third date was Sophie going to court with me to uh, have my probation terminated. So it was, uh, it was a really interesting beginning to our relationship. And I think, again, that cements like for us, we go all in on pretty much everything. You know, we don't like to fuck around. Yeah. It's kind of like we're either in it or mm-hmm. it's time to hit the road. Like I always think about the fact that that's what Sophie even knew that she was putting up with when she met me was all that stuff. And the stuff you're referring to is then we're together for a year and I cheat on her. Mm-hmm. And then I come and fess up. And that was what would then start a really long road for us of recovery from that and starting to learn what real relationships are about instead of the things that I thought were real relationships in my earlier life. What did you learn being in jail? Mm. Like a year's a long time. Yeah. So I did four months in LA County jail. Mm-hmm. I did eight months in this thing called the work furlough program, which was, um, like you go to jail at night and then you go work during the day. Okay. But I'll tell you four months in jail That's a long time. is a long time. That's a really good question. What I'd learned. People don't normally ask what I learned. They say, how was jail? And I say, it fucking sucked. Um, <laughs> but what did I learn in jail? I mean, I, look, first of all, I learned that I can put up with anything. And I think that was important for me mm-hmm. to understand because the pain of recovering 
the pain of learning how to deal with all the shit that I was running away mm. from my whole life felt really scary. But after jail, it didn't feel scary anymore. Mm. You know, I was talking, I was giving a talk just a couple of days ago and I said that jail is the only thing I've ever done in my life that can be both dehumanizing, incredibly boring and terrifying all at once. It's all this stuff you've seen, you know, when you walk in, you got to take your clothes off and bend mm -hmm. over and like just get naked. And I got to tell you, I don't know what it's like for women, but I assume around 50 women you don't know, it's still fucking awkward as hell. But for men to strip all your clothes down and then stand in a room half the size of this and like 50 guys just like holding your fucking clothes in, in a bag, they start the dehumanizing process early. Wow. And, you know, you get the number and all that stuff mm -hmm. on your wrist. And so that's the beginning. And you really just have to go with it because you have no idea what's coming and you have zero control over any of it. And for somebody like me who came from a situation where I always try to control as much of my environment as I could, that was probably a good thing to learn. You know, I showed up sober. I was sober for about eight months when I walked into jail and I stayed sober, even though people are very creative in jail around getting fucked up. Uh, but I stayed sober the whole time. And I think more than anything, I just, I learned that. I learned that I can adapt really well hmm. to almost any situation. Uh, and that gives me, I think that even now in life, that gives me peace. Like, I know I'm good. Mm -hmm. Like, even if shit falls apart, given what it is right now, I know I can manage that. But, um, you know, for anybody listening right now who's thinking about jail, I'd, I'd recommend against it. Mm -hmm. There are yeah. better places. It's hard to imagine. You feel like an animal in a cage. It's, mm. There's not a much easier description for it. For that. anyone who's listening, who is struggling with or know someone who is struggling with addiction and, and drug use, what is like the, when you relapse, mm. you know, cause I feel like that can be something that people just can't comprehend why after a year or two of, of being, you know, sober of, you know, recovering and all of that, like how can a relapse happen or yeah. how can it happen over and over and over again? Um, like what is the science behind it? The psychology? Sure. So first of all, an amazing question, because I think you're right. A lot of people don't understand that somebody was just tweeting, um, at an episode with Dr. Oz that went live and somebody tweeted something oh, like yeah, so no good. compassion for continued drug abuse, you know, just handle your blah, blah, blah and, mm. and move on or something like that, which is, by the way, a really common way for people to react. They like tweeted I, you that? They tweeted me and him essentially because yeah, we were talking yeah. all about addiction. Wow. Um, so look, there, there are so many elements of this. The way I think about addiction is this, that there are typically kind of these four factors that are important, biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality. And different people deal with different elements of this, but the biology we've been hearing about for a while, drugs interfere with the way your circuits work in your brain. And one of the ways, main ways they do that is through interfering with dopamine release in certain areas of the brain that make you want or feel more rewarded by that behavior. That's important, but look, a lot of other things that we do have that effect on us, like sex and food and playing video games and, and you know, using your phone mm -hmm. all have that kind of effect on us. And I'm not saying people can't get addicted to those. They absolutely can. But there's something different between a normal dopaminergic reaction, like what normally happens to people when they use their phone and use drugs even, and when people struggle. So I, that's why I think biology is one piece of the puzzle. There's genes involved, et cetera, and that's important. One of the main differences that I see for a lot of people is the biology and uh, the psychology and environment pieces. And what I mean by that is, if you're surrounded by people, like everybody I knew were drug users, 
leaving that life behind meant kind of starting over, which is a scary proposition, right? If everybody you know smokes weed mm. and you know you have to quit, quitting also means losing your entire social group, which is probably scarier for some people than, than not smoking. So like when you're talking about somebody who got sober for a year or two or an even longer period of time, they by a year or two, you must have dealt with your environment because you can't make it a year or two smoking weed, stopping, and then just walking into your friend's house all the time with smoking. So that probably has been dealt with for some people. But there are other environmental stressors, right? A lot of the people I work with do totally fine. And then like a parent dies or their wife leaves them or they lose a limb because of something that happened in work. Like something terrible happens to them because of outside influences. Mm. And instantaneously the way their body knows how to deal with that stress, the way their brain has been programmed to deal with that stress is to go back to those strategies, weed, alcohol, drugs, et cetera. So that's a, that's a huge one. And then lastly, most of the people that I work with come with a bag of psychological trauma. It runs the gamut from being actually abused physically, psychologically, sexually, when you were younger, like that's one big bucket of trauma that happens to a lot of people. But then there's smaller stuff like, being through your parents' divorce, being abandoned and being adopted when you were younger, uh, moving a lot, right? Kids who moved around a lot when they were younger learn how to cope. And sometimes that coping is through getting together with kids who smoke. Because like if you smoke weed or drink and you're moving around in junior high, you find the other kids who are smoking weed and drinking, you've got your new group of friends. So what I work on with people a lot, and I would urge anybody who knows somebody who's struggling with drugs or alcohol or any addiction at this point, Break down how you believe they got there through biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality. For me, spirituality is connecting to anything that's bigger than you. Um, like my purpose in helping other people who are addicted is one of the ways I connect spiritually to life. Gratitude lists, all that kind of stuff. Almost inevitably, the people that I, family members that I work with who know somebody who's struggling or have a kid or something like that, when they break those things down, all of a sudden they have a completely different understanding of their loved one's addiction. Because you know, that whole thing of that attitude of like, well, just stop drinking. If you just stop drinking, we'll all love you again and you'll be able to work and all those things will come back to you. Why don't you just stop? It misses the point and the reason that they're actually drinking, right? There's an actual reason there. I talk about that a lot in the book. Everybody always tells addicts to just stop the behavior. What they forget is that there's a laundry list of things behind closed doors that that person is keeping in their head um, because of which they drink. Like, Look, nobody wants to drink at four o'clock in the morning. You know, nobody. Nobody wants to wake up at nine and reach for a bottle of vodka. That person does not exist. So don't tell them to stop drinking. Figure out why it is that mm. they're doing it and then start helping them with those elements. Mm. What about like the shame piece is a real issue in this whole world of wanting to get people well, you know, and... I just think whether it's sex addiction, whether it's alcohol, whatever it is, it's like, it's like that big block, yeah. like kind of separating the addicts from those that are quote unquote not, but I'm sure everyone's kind of dealing with some sort of addiction in some way, but you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, look, we talked about this a little bit when we had you on Ignited. Shame can come in all shapes, sizes, forms, sources. Mm. Everybody has felt it before. The thing about shame is that until we have conversations like this, when you really feel shame, like not, not one of those, I'm embarrassed because I gained three pounds kind of like mm -hmm. shame, but the really deep core stuff mm -hmm. about who you are as a human, 
when you feel that shame and you know it because you're having a hard time breathing, you feel the pit in your stomach and you, you just want to escape shame. I call it kind of one of those core feelings that, that makes you just want to bury and hide and we'll do anything to escape it. So we'll try to cover it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, guaranteed there are people who soul cycle every day of the week because of extreme shame and almost like escapism. Yeah. And you probably yeah. see those people in, in class who you can feel like they don't interact a lot. They just kind of come in, they get on the bike, they do their thing. They feel like they're, they always feel like they're less than, they never feel like they're mm-hmm. worth anything. And then they run out. You can kind of see the level of discomfort in somebody who's really deep in their shame and substance use, porn use, gambling. A lot of these, there are ways for people to escape their reality into a different way of being a way that removes at least their awareness of their shame. And so I think it's a huge topic for people. It doesn't only address addictions. I think a lot of us carry around shame from, again, parents not loving us, feeling like we're not worth enough, feeling like we're not good looking enough, not smart enough, not fast enough in track, whatever the thing is that got you, not good enough talking to people, you know, not well-liked enough. Mm -hmm. So many of us carry these things from early, early on, but we've just learned to kind of hide and pretend like it's okay. And I'm a huge believer. I mean, obviously I kind of, I wear this bracelet that says fuck shame around my, my um, um, wrist all the time. And it's a reminder for me that whenever that feeling comes up, the right action for me at least is to share that with somebody, not let it hide, mm. not let it recede, not let, not let it make me feel uncomfortable enough to run away to something. Because even the cheating on Sophie was partially our sex life was fucked up back then. Sophie has had, had sexual trauma of her own before me. And instead of going and fixing that, cause that was uncomfortable, but like having a conversation with my then live-in girlfriend to say, mm. hey, uh, we gotta talk about this. You know, this isn't working out and we gotta figure out a way to fix it. In my head, I fully rationalized going somewhere else and getting it. So I was like, I was getting my sexual charge from somebody else. And in my head, it totally made sense. Like. Well, you know, I'm letting Sophie off the hook. I'm, I'm good. It's, I'm actually helping our relationship. But that was mm-hmm. because I wasn't strong enough to bring it up to her and have a real conversation about it. How would you suggest that a couple have a conversation about it mm. if they were to be in your situation? Like if you were could go back in time, what would you have had? <sighs> what a good question. If they're listening to this right now, if anybody mm-hmm. from the coupleship is listening to this right now and this is hitting at all, then that's probably a sign that learning better communication is necessary in the relationship. And you know that pretty easily. I mean, Sophie and I put an online workshop on that helps people with actual tools. Um, If you look up ignited relationship intro workshop, um, that'll come up, but you know, the tools are pretty simple. The awareness is one of the important things. And and maybe I can give one quick tool here for how how people can communicate in this way. A lot of times when people especially in coupleship, but in any relationship. I mean, you guys are in a relationship, right? It's mm-hmm. anytime you have a close relationship, people tend to deflect responsibility and tell somebody else what isn't working. Like you did this yesterday and it pissed me off or I can't stand it when you, right? Et cetera. And that's, that's a really pretty common way for people to speak. There's this technique called reflective listening and reflective listening is about each person communicating what it is that they're struggling with. So let's say we, you try to use I statements, but you know, it could be something like, you know, I felt really ignored and underappreciated when you showed up late yesterday 
to our meeting because I was just sitting around. I had all the stuff that I had to do, but you know, I showed up in time and I respected our space. And then you came 20 minutes late and it really upset me. And so one person shares what it is that they're going through and the other person reflects it back. It doesn't answer. It doesn't respond, but just reflects it back. Oh, so what I'm hearing is that you felt really upset and ignored yesterday when I was late to our meeting for 20 minutes. And the person would say, well, ignored and underappreciated. You know, you kind of go mm-hmm. back and forth and you make sure that the other person has actually understood and heard what it is you're talking about before you start mm-hmm. arguing about it. Because how many, have you ever had a, a fight with somebody and you're like just going at each other? And um, by the end of it, you're fighting about 17 different things. You're talk, You're responding before they're even done telling you what's wrong and it's you just kind of feel like you're talking at each other yeah it's like a, of course you just like start the tape yeah you're like and you all can, right and then you're gonna fight about the same shit over and you don't even know you're there like you're like sometimes you're like what where are like who are you here like you're not even there yeah like you almost see yourself yeah you're like in the fight like it's almost like a movie like you're yeah. saying like playing the tape like you're just seeing somebody you just leave you know you're not present at all because yeah. you start saying stuff that you're like what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you like heard yourself say that back, you'd be like, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people get, that's how people get really offended in, in these discussions. And so if that's how you end up having conversation with your partner, obviously you don't want to talk about uncomfortable things. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck wants to talk about uncomfortable things when that's yeah. what it's like. So you just end up not talking about it. Mm. Then nobody talks about anything. And then seven months later, you're like, what the fuck are we doing here? Mm. Like, you know, so that's a really, really big one. I typically find that most of us just don't even start the conversations. And so I think what would have been amazing for me, like I said back then, because like I said, Sophie had been through trauma, like sexual abuse and physical abuse and definitely emotional abuse mm-hmm. in her past long relationship, really her only relationship before me. But I never found myself I never put myself in her shoes mm. back then and said, well, when you go from that relationship to another relationship, how do you learn to trust somebody? How do you learn to, that the other person actually has your back? And, you know, there, were, there was a time, I actually never haven't thought about this in a while, but there was a time that, like if I went like this around Sophie, she would back up. Mm. I, you know, like when I would raise my hand. Mm what the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. And she, there was literally a fear yeah. that I'm going to hit her. Yeah, I can't, first of all, I can't fathom anybody doing that to Sophie, mm-hmm. which pissed me off a little mm-hmm. bit by itself. Mm-hmm. But if that's a built-in reaction around an arm movement, mm. you have to really wonder what the reaction is around conversations. Yeah. yeah. So wow. I think it's for a lot of people, it's just about opening the door up and saying, hey, let's talk about the uncomfortable things and being okay. Like it's not me telling you that there's something that causes friction between us is not me putting you down. Mm. It's me being honest and trying to work on our relationship. And I think too, like for people struggling with addiction, like for that other person to um, kind of hold space in a way that like allows them to say, anything. Yeah. Like, like, because I would think that people who are struggling with that would always kind of, kind of, um, edit what they're going to say because they're worried about either the reaction or the judgment Mm. or whether they be able to handle it or not. So just to be able to say all the things like today, like I, I watched a ton of porn and I'm not proud of it. And I'm like really struggling to do, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, 
you can say all the things is like an important for that other person to hold space for. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, you use one example that I, I want to get back to in a second because I think it's so powerful. Like sex addiction, what Sophie and I found out through Sophie sharing about our struggles is mm-hmm. how many couples are struggling yeah. with sex. Yeah. And we know it, like we've all heard it, but let's be real. I don't know, again, I don't know what it's like among women talking amongst themselves, but even if people, women talk about like the sex, they might complain about the act, but the gaps that it leaves in your intimacy kind of get left behind because look, nobody really wants to have conversations that make other people go, well, you should leave this relationship or something along those lines. So we mm-hmm. keep that back. We just don't share it, which means we don't get to talk to anybody about it. Um, and I think I love the point you brought out about addiction and you put it in such a nice way. You edit and you you keep some things back, but addicts are known as liars. And I argue, literally, I just talked about this yesterday in front of a bunch of professionals, like addicts lie when you put them in situations where they need to lie. Yeah. I, my friends knew exactly how much meth I was using. They weren't, I wasn't lying to them. I was lying to my parents because I felt like if I talked to my parents about it, the response I would get would not be, oh, well, would you like some help with that or what's going on? Like mm. that's not, I would get judgment. And so mm. people lie when they feel like they're not going to be, like when that shame creeps up. And so I love that. And sex is exactly one of those topics that, I mean, there's, I'm, I feel like there's buckets of shame just raining on us right now, almost just by talking about it. Yeah. And you guys do a really good job of bringing this shit up for real in this podcast. And I think that's one of the things that really attracts people to you is you just say whatever comes up for you versus filtering it mm-hmm. because everybody else just filters shit out. Like, well, people don't want to hear that or this is going to make them uncomfortable. So we'll keep it out. And we had an, an example in one of the early episodes with Sophie and I, where we talked about a growth moment we had, which was years into my recovery and us doing better. And uh, we were at the beach for like a, some kid's birthday party and, my, and Sophie was standing there talking and right behind her was this really hot girl in a bikini. And um, I turned to Sophie and I said, can you just move? I just, I can't focus on you because the half naked woman is standing right behind you. And for us, that was a real growth moment because in the past, I would have tried to ignore it. I would have felt shame about looking at that woman and not being able to listen to my wife. And I wanted to listen to my wife. But for us, me telling her to just move three feet to the right was a real opportunity to share what's going on with my wife, mm. connect with her, explain, I want to listen to you, but I'm being distracted. Can you move over? And the funny moment that came out of it is she looked back, she said, yeah, good taste. You know, and it was like <laughs> for us to come from that yeah. place of the cheating to my wife, being able to understand that is. I'm not saying my wife is not equally attractive. None of the, there was no judgment about her. It was rather, I'm recognizing what I'm going through right now. Like that example you said with, hey, I'm, I don't know what's going on. The last couple of days, I'm watching a lot of porn. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out why. Like what in the intimacy is lacking? What is that person not getting that they wish they could? What is stressing them out at work that they don't want to take out on their spouse and they just want to like go masturbate so that the stress relief they mm. get from the serotonin, you get a huge serotonin dump when you orgasm, like it, it causes a stress reduction. You know, if you can talk, if you can find somebody that you can talk to all your deepest, craziest, most ridiculous secrets about, that's it. You've got your person and they will be there through everything and they will be able to support you and they will be able to be there through your growth and you growing and becoming the person that you can be that you've hidden all those other years. Mm. I feel like so much of it is like everyone puts themselves in it. So, you know, in like Sophie's case, it would be like, oh, she's hot. So you don't think I'm attractive or with addiction. Like if it was like, hey, I've been watching a lot of porn. You'd be like, oh, he's watching a lot of porn. He doesn't 
he's not attracted to me or like mm-hmm. I was a bad mother or I was a bad father. And it's like, they take every action from a person as like a personal, as if it relates to them. Yeah. And I think know? a lot of times it connects to those things in the past that we feel mm-hmm. insecure about. Yeah. Like for men, you know, not being strong enough, not um, being good looking enough, not making enough money, mm-hmm. not being like alpha enough, whatever the thing is that you've got that you've had since like junior high or high school and you never dealt with. If that stuff comes up in a relationship and it triggers you, that's when those crazy fights happen. That's when jealousy happens, right? Like, what is jealousy? Jealousy is you, like, I tell Sophie all the time, I actually can't believe, Sophie tells me that she doesn't look at other guys, or she doesn't find other guys attractive when she's in a relationship. And for a while, I didn't believe her at all. And we've talked about it since <laughs> we've kind of like reformulated what that means. But I always believed that jealousy was almost like this worthless emotion because you telling me that something occurred in your life, literally even if like, hey, I'm falling in love with a workmate. Yes, that affects my relationship with you for sure. But one of the first ways that I look at it always like, what are you finding in this person that you're not finding here? Not from like what's wrong with you or, or how can I be aggressive in a way that will bring you back? But rather look, I must be missing something. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think for a lot of people, jealousy is like this protective emotion. Like I will deflect it. I will put it on you. You've done something wrong. You wear clothing that is too revealing or you talk to people that you shouldn't mm. talk to. Whatever the thing is, you flirt too much. Like if my if my partner likes to flirt, I'm just making this up. Like if my partner likes to flirt, am I afraid that they're going to leave me because we're talking to other people? That how insecure am I in our relationship? That just because my partner is talking to somebody like, a restaurant or a bar at work or whatever, that it's going to go beyond that. I I think a lot of you said we inject ourselves into the fear. I think a lot of times we do that for sure. And then we don't inject ourselves too much into the solution. Mm. Like we don't look at what we could change to make the situation better. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm fine. I'm, I'm doing everything perfectly. You need to change because this isn't working. I mm-hmm. think is a really common mm-hmm. um, reaction and it's not helpful because the other person is going to feel exactly the same. And then you do that thing where you're just talking at each other and you come up with no solutions. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the abstinence myth? Mm-hmm. We can. Dr. Betty <laughs> Jaffe's new book. Yeah. How exciting. Are you yeah. pumped? Yeah. I am. You know, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm always the guy who feels like I left something behind. So it's like, oh. that's my thing to deal with. Oh, no. that I always feel like it's, um, there's I like more I want to do. So has like this been talked it. about yeah. before? Like, not a lot. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I just, I feel like, because sometimes when books come out, I'm like, oh, okay, so it's been talked about before, but it's just from their voice. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, in yeah, this yeah. space, and this have not. People have written about, about it before, but for professionals. So, like, harm yeah. reduction, yes. that kind of stuff has been written for professionals, but never to the public. And I wanted to just come right out That's and say I mean, everything yeah. that I felt like. Dr. Oz, when he had me on just a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. said he started the podcast with saying, I never thought I'd be talking about this on the podcast. And I love that because look, a report, another report just came out. Uh, it was 60,000 people that died from overdoses to uh, opiates in 2016. And in 2017, it went up to 72,000, like literally almost a 20% increase. We're losing more people every year. We've been losing more people every year for the last 30 years. What we're doing wow. isn't working. And you talked about porn and sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, for people struggling with food and sex, abstinence is obviously not the answer, right? Like you can't just go through life not ever touching yourself or touching other people. That would be fucking insane. So if that solution works there 
and the same for depression and anxiety. Nobody would ever say to somebody who's suffering with clinical depression, like, hey, you relapse, you had another depression episode. Like, that's when you help people. But in addiction, you mentioned relapse. When somebody relapses, we back away. We look at them like, hey, you fucked up. So mm-hmm. pretty much the whole point of my book is we've messed up in a lot of ways. And one of the first ways is we make people quit before they get help. Like the first thing you have to do to go to rehab is commit to quitting. And that's the hardest thing for a lot of people to do. So I think we put it in the wrong place. Not that abstinence is not a good idea for some people, but it should not be the first thing you have to commit to. And then the second thing is we measure how people are doing in their recovery by their abstinence. So how do you know if an alcoholic is doing well? You say, how long do you have sober? Well, that's the answer. Like, oh, I've got three years sober. And three years sober is better than two years sober, but it's not as good as 15 years sober. Mm. But I look at a holistic way of looking at somebody's life, their relationships, their career, their financial situation, their comfort with themselves, their purpose, um, their contribution to their society, their self-growth, like all those elements. And if you've just been sober for four years, but you're holding on to the chair all the time and just going like, I'm going to make it through today. I'm not going to drink, but you're not working on all these other things you're missing a piece. So the abstinence myth, the idea is A, abstinence is not the only way to measure success. And then secondly, abstinence should not be the first thing we ask people to commit to. And my goal is to flip the equation on something that a lot of people just stay quiet about. And I I don't really understand why. And that is that only about 10% of people who struggle with addiction go get help, professional help for it. And it's the only condition we know of from depression and anxiety to cancer, diabetes, uh, hypertension, any condition you look at, it's the only condition where only 10% of people get help. Uh, Even at the low end for some of those, like anxiety and depression, the stats are 50 to 60%. But for physical conditions, it's like 80, 90% of people get help. And my goal through all these conversations and everything is to just kill the shame, kill the stigma, explain to people that A, you're not alone, B, your life is not hopeless, there are a lot of situations that seem completely dire and insane and crazy when you first look at them. And you look at that, those, that same person five, six years later and their life is so completely different. And I really want people to buy into and understand that you can recover from anything. I don't care how far down it's been. I don't care what your early life looked like, abuse or trauma or anything like that. There's a way out for people. So that's why I wrote the book is to give people another way. Yeah, it's really, I mean... I feel like we always hear, at least when I was growing up, it's like, you know, more in a, in a way, like I had a a lot of friends who had siblings who were drug addicts and it's like, Oh, well, once an addict, always an addict. And you, you almost like predict their life for them and kind of put them in this framework Mm. that that's only the way they know and can live. It's like, yeah, then yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna relapse and feel like they have no hope. So, so the abstinence myth, are, are you saying, within that framework, like, so you're kind of reorganizing the like equation for recovery is yeah. in a way. Yeah. So we use, I use three principles and then there's nine steps that I outline in the book. Um, but the principles are, first of all, you got to do the honest exploration. So that stuff we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, like the real transparency about what's going on inside, but you have to have somebody who can be as non-shaming as possible to have that process with, because once an addict, always an addict, or how do you know an addict is lying? Their lips are moving or, you know, addicts are liars. Like these, these motifs that we run, addicts are unmotivated, dirty, unreliable thieves, you know, all these stigmatizations that we have for people who struggle with this. The most unhelpful thing about them is, as you pointed out, and I cover that in literally an entire chapter in the book, 
is we have so much research that the way you look at people changes the way they behave. And so if you think somebody's a liar, they are more likely to lie to you. If you think they're unmotivated mm-hmm. and untrustworthy, you're going to find more opportunities to see that in them. And so we are literally making it harder for people to recover from addiction based on our beliefs. Yeah. We don't think people with cancer are bad people. We don't think people that have diabetes are bad people. We do that with some other mental health. Like, you know, we think people with depression are kind of lazy and unmotivated. Like, So I think that's why mm-hmm. mental health is is like the redheaded stepchild thing of, of health. Everybody's afraid to to get near it and and really dive in deep because of the shame and the stigma. And I think from what we were talking about before, so many people have felt it themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people are afraid that like, if you get into it, you're going to have to start admitting your own issues. I don't know if there's a single human listening to this right now who hasn't struggled with depression. You may not have ever been diagnosed as clinically depressed. Maybe you've never had to take medication for it. But if you have never struggle with depression, then please DM me because I want to study you, right? Like Mm -hmm. we've all struggled with that, but it's almost like we're a little happy that there's us, the normal people who struggle with depression, and then those other crazy people and they're different. And so we make them other people and we do the same thing to addicts. And as soon as we do that, not only do we make it less likely that they'll recover, but we also make it less likely that people will admit to having the problem. Because Who wants to be an addict? Nobody. Who wants to be a clinically depressed person? Nobody. Who wants to be bipolar? Nobody. Because we've made them this distant kind of reality where in the way I see it, we're all on a continuum and we all know people that are, you know, I lean towards depression. Like Mm -hmm. I don't lean towards mania and excitement. I, most of the time I wake up in the morning and I got to like rally myself, you know, and that's okay. That's just how I am. That's how I'm built. I don't now, now I should say, I don't see that as a really negative Mm -hmm. thing in my life. What was it like to write this book? Like, did you have to Mm. go through everything again? Or, you know, how was Mm. that process of like reliving and unloading? Mm. So this book doesn't include a huge telling of my story. We wrote that chapter, but it was like a 30 page chapter and a 120 page book. Well, the book would have been 150. I didn't want to make 20% of the book my story. I wanted it to be more like a helpful guide for people. So we will write that in a bigger piece. You know, the funny thing is I had written 500 pages for this book before I ever got together with this editor. So this was actually more cutting. And at the end, I had to get really clear on what I wanted. And I wanted a really quick read Mm -hmm. that anybody could pick up in a day and a half and just get into action. There are more than enough books if you want to think about and learn about and study addiction. This is not that book. This is a book for people or people who know somebody who are struggling and they're like, I want things to get better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. What can I do literally today to make things even a little bit like 10% better tomorrow? What does that look like? And I wrote the book for those people. Wow. But it was fun. It was like a, wait, fun. It was a year of, I have to get really focused to write. Mm. So I'd have to leave the house really early before anything else happened. We only had two kids back then only, Um, (laughs) but I would leave the house super early and like go have breakfast somewhere and just sit down with my laptop and write. Mm. Yeah. Wow. What would you say to your younger self? How far do I want to go back? I don't know. 20s. Yeah. 20s. My 20s. Mm -hmm. Give us some business tips. How do you grow? (laughs) How do you grow a business? Like you grew a business. Of ecstasy selling. Uh, <laughs> drugs drugs are a seller's market, I'll tell you that. Yeah. If you have drugs, people oh. will want to buy them from you. That's just so let's make it clear. We're not promoting. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we're, this is about entrepreneurship. We're I know. about entrepreneurship. You know what? I, I'll, I'll, take that, I'll, I'll take that in a different way, though. 
I come from a completely non-entrepreneurial family. My dad was an academic. My mom works as an HR resource manager in a bank. I came from a place where like, you were either an academic and you studied your whole life and mm-hmm. that was the purpose. Or actually, my, my mom never really pushed this on us, but like, oh, you go get a job. I realized really freaking early that I'm not that guy. I cannot hold a job. Mm-hmm. I can't hold a job for more than like a year. Like if I make it a year, that was a really comfortable environment for me. Mm-hmm. Drug dealing was the first time I learned how entrepreneurial I was. Like, I will do anything. I will bust my ass. You know, there's that joke for entrepreneurs. Like, entrepreneurs are the people that will work 80 hours and not work 40 hours a week. And you know that. I mean, we're in your home mm-hmm. recording. <laughs> like, you have turned your home into an office in order to not go to an office. Yeah. Right? I mean, you guys talked about the process, what it takes to become a soul cycle, like, certified mm-hmm. uh, teacher. That's a lot of damn work. Yeah. All yeah. to not have a regular job, right? Like, we will go through crazy, crazy, crazy uh, hurdles so to do that. And I learned about myself that I'll put up with that. Like drug dealing is a 24-7, 365 job. Um, actually not true. Christmas Day, nobody calls. And then Thanksgiving from like three o'clock till the end of the night when everybody's done with their families, nobody calls. But that's a day and a half you get off a year. The rest of the time, <laughs> people need you. And uh, wow. So like we would go get fucked up on Christmas day because nobody was calling us so we could party. Um, As if you weren't fucked up when you yeah, were literally. Okay. <laughs> You're like, that's, like, he's like, but that's a fair yeah. point. That is a fair point. I was fucked up all the time. So, but that really introduced me to the entrepreneurial thing. So now with Ignite and all these other things, I'm really yeah. locked into how much I love doing that. So I did learn things from that experience and I wouldn't write it off. By the way, now I'm 42 years old, but... I tell Sophie this all the time. I will at least never, I'm not going to be seven years old going, I wish I would have done more, blah, blah, blah. I, I got it out of my, like, I'm good. Mm. Right. Uh, we still have, we have a lot of fun, Sophie and I together, but I lived this really crazy life that I now get to kind of pull mm. off of the capital that I, that I invested back then. But, you know, one of the things that I would probably say to my self back then is get more comfortable being yourself. You don't have to be anybody else. The quicker you get comfortable with who you really are and honest with the people around you about who you really are, the faster your life will move into action. And uh, I spent probably from the time I was like 11 or 12 till the time I was in my definitely at least late 20s, just pretending. You know, the sex stuff came later. So even up until my early 30s, really where I was just pretending I was always uncomfortable around girls. So I found like, that's what porn did for me. Like mm-hmm. I didn't have to talk to girls. I could mm-hmm. just do porn. Like mm-hmm. that made sense. So that's what I would tell myself is get mm-hmm. really, really much more comfortable with who you are. Mm. So good. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Last question. Um, do you have any stories of like people that you've worked with um, mm. through Ignited Recovery that just really like kind of reaffirmed kind of why you do this work? Oh, I'm sure so, there's so many. But. I have so many. Uh, you know, Savannah, my assistant is sitting here and I make a point of all of us who are on the team sharing in those stories because it's absolutely the thing that keeps us going. And there are, I mean, there's so many, but yeah, I think maybe one of my favorite ones, you know, it's funny. I've never actually met these clients that I work with now. Right. So mm-hmm. they do an online course. They've read my stuff. All this stuff is automated. If they're really invested in the course, they meet with me on a video chat once a week. It's a group video chat but all their screens are down. Like they don't have video. I, I'm the only one that has video because of the shame. Nobody wants to really show themselves, right? Uh-huh. So I've created this system that allows you to never have to see me, never have to walk into an office and still work. And this guy, 
I can say his, like butcher his first name and use that in there. But this guy, Dave, joined us and um, he was a daily blackout drinker. And what would happen is the history in his life, he'd been to six treatment episodes before and the history of his life was, it built up for years. And then eventually he realized he had to do something about it. He almost lost a job around it. So he went to an outpatient treatment center, got a little bit better for a few months, started drinking a little bit more, went back to that place. So six times he went through that cycle. And then he comes into the course. I didn't know he was a daily uh, blackout drinker when he first started, but we did the course. He was really invested. We have like this private Facebook group that he would share and we'd send me emails and we'd talk during those uh, Tuesday meetings and it was really cool. And then when he was done, he was checking in with me about a, three months later, four months later, about a totally different topic. And I asked just offhand, I was like, hey, by the way, what's going on with the drinking? Because, you know, I haven't talked to you in three mm-hmm. months. And he goes, oh, it's good. You know, since I joined the course, I've drank four times and uh, a couple of those actually went really well and I drank exactly how much I wanted and two of them were a little too much, but... I'm not devastated by it because of the things that I learned with you. And so I just kind of jump back on the horse the next day and everything's good. He said, I can't beat myself up over it because I used to black out every single night of the week. And now I don't. He said, so, so thanks. And it was kind of like this super simple story about a guy who was living this devastated life for mm. over a decade. And I don't even, honestly, with the stuff in the book, and I don't think what I'm doing is that groundbreaking. It's the stuff that worked for me and the stuff that I've learned over years. But to have these stories of people who essentially couldn't hold a job, couldn't keep it together, were risking their lives, um, and then don't have perfect outcomes, but feel good about themselves, that's that's it for me. And that's one of literally like dozens of stories that wow. that tell me these things. And every time we get one, we share it around the office and um and that's like the next couple of weeks, a couple of months of motivation for us. It's really great. Oh, I love I can that. imagine. Well, I'm so excited for mm-hmm. your book. Um, how can people connect with you and where can people find the book? Cool. So the easiest way, honestly, because you know we're having some weird little issues with the book on Amazon right now. Easiest way is theabstinensmith.com. If you just go to theabstinensmith.com, mm-hmm. that website will direct you whatever you need to at that point. So that will great. keep being updated with all the right information. You can get put on a wait list. Uh, we're doing some really cool things for the book. So we're going to have a local event oh, that people cool. will be able to kind of get access to through public sharing and, and reviews and all this really cool stuff. We're giving away fuck shame uh, t-shirts and fuck shame bracelets and like awesome. doing a lot of really, Love really that. cool stuff to push this message. Um, so look me up there. Obviously, Sophie and I do Ignited. And so if you mm-hmm. go to ignited.com or find that podcast on the iTunes store, there's a million ways to connect with us. And, you know, I've, I've lofty goals. I want to help a million people beat their addiction and around relationships. I want to help lower the uh, divorce rate in this country. That's my goal with Ignited Relationships. So whether you're somebody who's struggling or somebody who wants to join the cause and help, but just find us and connect with us. Yeah, that's really incredible work. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank this you so much. Everything coming. is linked in the show notes so you can go there to find everything. Um, we appreciate you coming over. This was like... Yeah, it's so good. This it's a needed so conversation good. that we haven't had. Yeah, you know, appreciate it. So thank much. you, thank Love you so much, you. and welcome back after your tour. You guys were Thanks. just like Thanks. all we're over not the done. country. Yeah. Oh, we're done, really? <laughs> and I got headed out in like a few weeks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I see. I see the shares. The tour amazing. never ends. So right, it's so right. good. Really, I love it's it. So amazing. So you it. know, when you meet people in person, you're oh. like, oh my god. Yeah. I get to do this. It's crazy. I know. It's amazing. I love it. Well, congratulations. It's all right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. We love you, and we will see you next time. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Woo woo. I really loved, I really enjoyed that conversation. I was like, oh, that was fun. 
That was fun and awesome. And just changing how even I look at addiction, you know, because I don't struggle with that type of addiction. And so I always feel like there's a little bit of a something between me and the, and people struggling. So Mm -hmm. it's to look at it in a different way kind of helps to see, you know, those struggling as human beings and how we can kind of relate and help each other heal. So Adi, you're the best. Thank you so much for being on. Um, this is just the beginning of what people kind of learning about your work on a, you know, worldwide scale. Yes. Mm -hmm. Review of the week. Long-time listener, first-time call reviewer. Huh? Five stars. Cool. I've been listening. This is from Flute Set. F-L-O-O-T-S-E-T-T-E. Thank you. I've been listening since the very beginning of Almost 30. The infamous closet floor recordings. (laughs) She's ride or die. And it has been a true pleasure to watch... Krista and Lindsay find their voices and their wings as this community has grown. Their ability to be truly and authentically themselves gives others a safe space to do the same as evidenced by the uniquely strong and supportive community that has built around them. They keep it fun and light while delivering quality content, but aren't shy about getting deep when it's needed. I admire their willingness to bring tough conversations to the forefront. There truly is something for everyone here. Do yourself a favor by tuning in. (laughs) <laughs> um, I read one of those before I put myself to bed at night. <laughs> I should do. <laughs> uh, there's something for everyone here. Thank you. That is true. That is true. Spread the freaking word. Spread the word. Thanks for sharing Appreciate with your friends, it. diagnosing and prescribing episodes. It means a lot. That's really how we've grown and we wouldn't be anything without you guys. So Uh, appreciate you very much and love you very much. And we will see you in Vancouver if you live in Vancouver. And then internationally, we will see you next year. And we have some exciting things coming up, a few different projects that we can't wait to share with you. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned. Stay tuned, y'all, and have a great week. We love you.